I want you to turn to Matthew 21. Let's begin reading today with the 33rd verse and then I just want to give you a little, uh, maybe an introduction to the message and try to get into a few things. Time won't permit me to cover everything that I'd like to cover in this particular parable as I look at the parable of the vineyard today. Verse 33, the words of Jesus. Hear another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandman took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first and they did unto them likewise. But look at this phrase, last of all, he sent his son. Last of all, he sent his son, unto, sent unto them his son, saying this, they will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. Let us seize on this inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord thereof of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? They say unto him, he will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their season. Jesus saith unto them, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now I'll stop reading there. This particular, I think it's important that you see the particular timing of this parable that Jesus gave. These are the final days in the final week of the Lord's life here on earth before he was crucified. This one chapter is so filled that it would be an impossibility to preach everything out of this chapter in my lifetime with the days I have remaining. A lot's going on here. We find out leading up to this parable, certain things have happened. First of all, there was the triumphal entry that took place in this chapter. That's when the Lord came into the city and they were praising him on what we call Palm Sunday now is the reverence day for that. But not only do we see the triumphal entry, but we also see the temple being cleansed right after that. Because after that time, we know as well, Jesus went into the temple and he cleansed the temple because of their actions that were not right. And they had, they had changed the temple, the house of God. They had changed it for another purpose than what he had intended. So we not only see the triumphant entry, we not only see the temple that was cleansed, but also we see the tree, the fig tree that Jesus cursed. He went expecting to get fruit. There was no fruit on it. And because it was a false witness, because it was a hypocrite, because it was professing something that it didn't have, it's one thing in life to do was to produce fruit. And that's the only thing that it didn't do. And the Lord cursed that tree. So that's the way this all started. With those events, it stirred up the religious elders. 
It stirred up the scribes and the Pharisees. So Jesus starts a dialogue with them. And in this dialogue, in this chapter, he has two parables, but he really continues with a third parable in Matthew 22 that I didn't get into. He first tells about the parable of the two sons. The one that he bid to go in the field, he said, I'll go, but he did not go. He never went. The other one said, I will not go, but he repented and he changed his mind and he went into the field as the father had instructed him to. And then we read also of the parable that I read to you today about the vineyard. And in this particular parable that we'll break down to you, Lord willing, this morning, I think that it's interesting some of the unusual things that he states in this parable to those that will be responsible for his death. Those that will be responsible for plotting to make sure that his life is taken. And then in chapter 22 is the wedding garment, the wedding feast. And we read these parables and we glance over them, but sometimes we don't give much thought as to what he's saying. Now, a parable is really just something that was given, a truth that was given that was concealed to those that were not disciples. But to those that were disciples of the Lord, they could understand what he was saying because they had spiritual insight. I don't expect people that don't know the Lord to always understand what I'm trying to show them from God's word. Not because we are special. Not because we have greater knowledge. Some of this excels knowledge. You can have knowledge and still not know the true meaning of it. But it is the fact that when you are a follower of Christ and your faith is in Christ and you have the spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit inside of you, he teaches you all things. So the, the crowd that was there, if we go to Luke's account of this, we understand they had full awareness. The average common person had more awareness of what Jesus was saying than the religious leaders that taught and knew the Bible, they had less understanding than what the common folks did because they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. Now, for those of you that your favorite verse of scripture is judge not that you be not judged, you have to stay out of this chapter and the next chapter cause all three parables, something is judged. Now we'd love to live a life where we never have to judge our actions and we never have to judge our words and we never have to judge our deeds and we never have to judge our heart and we'd love to live in a world where no one had better look at me and tell me. I even hear pastors every now and then say, you better not say a word to that person about this or that. Listen folks, there's, there's a time where we have to come clean with God and if we're ever going to get right with God, we're going to have to let the Lord judge us through his word, through his his preaching, through his teaching, and through that and through the spirit, we start to see that really God wants to reveal something to us that will be just like those religious leaders. We will, we will leave this world with no understanding. He was talking about us the whole time. What amazed me in this particular passage, this particular passage, to me, it seemed like in this parable, different from other parables that I read in the Bible, the first thing that catches my attention, it seems like everything is so extreme. It's to the excess. 
it's extraordinary. It's above and beyond, whether it was for the good or for the bad. But he's teaching about the excess response to him and his coming. And when we look at that, I think that it's easy to see some things that are extreme. First of all, I, I see an extreme care for the vineyard. An extreme care for the vineyard. Where do you see that? Verse 33. The vineyard, he was the householder. The word householder, don't let it confuse you. He owned the property. He was the owner of the property. He goes out and he purchases this land. It's his land. He's the owner of it. He can do what he wants to do with it. But look at what he does. He plants a vineyard. He hedges it round about. He digs a wine press and he puts a tower in it. Now that's, that's a lot of care. If you know anything about grapes, that's a lot of care. Especially in the area that Jesus was at. Because when you talk about getting land and first just planting the vineyard, it is nothing but rock there. You would not believe the amount of rock they would have had to have moved in order to have planted this vineyard and prepare it. So it's not enough that he goes to the task of first he invests in it, he buys it, he sees in it what nobody else can see, even though that he's the householder, he knows what he wants to do with that. That's his plan, that's his purpose. He cultivates that land, has all the rock removed, he gets the vines, he plants the vines, and then he starts caring for the vines, but if that's not enough, he hedges it in. Those hedges sometimes were, were brushes, just brush that was thorns, and sometimes it was high stone walls, and in that he takes a wine press, he digs out a wine press. Most of the wine presses, they were rock and when they would dig out the center of them, they would also bore through with a hole until when they would press the grapes down, the juice would come out and flow out. So he made a way to get the best of the juice out of the grapes that were growing there. Not only did he do that, but he put a tower in it to watch over to say somebody's looking down on it in case a robber comes through the entrance way or a thief comes in to try to steal or destroy or an enemy comes to try to tear it down. He has taken extreme care. Do you realize for any of you that's ever done anything with grapes, do you know from the time that you plant a vine, on the average, it will take you at least three years of pruning, fertilizing, caring for it, shaping it, watching out for it, protecting it. It will be at least three years before you get a crop from it. That's extreme care. He puts a lot into this vineyard. And with that, he then gets a husbandman. He's saying, I'm going back to a far country, but I'm going to get an overseer. And the way that that worked in biblical times, the husbandman was the individual that would take these, these helpers and workers and there in the vineyard, they would work that period of time, but eventually they knew their crop was coming. Now they didn't have the money to buy the land, but the owner, he wasn't going to stay. So he needed somebody to care for that. So he leaves it in their hands and he says, I'm going away, but eventually harvest will come. And when the harvest comes, 
whether it be they were selling the juice or whether it be he was taking part of that for himself, he would come to collect the harvest. They would have an agreement set up. It could be 50-50, it doesn't matter the percentages, but they agreed, we'll take care of that and then at the right time, you'll come, you'll receive, you'll receive the fruits of the labor and the fruits of the labor will go to you, we'll get our part. It's important you catch that. Now, you know the amazing part of it is, will you turn back to Isaiah chapter five with me? Stay with me, I'm gonna preach here in just a minute, but I've gotta, I've gotta set the premise to what I want you to see. In Isaiah chapter five, they should have known this. Isaiah chapter five and verse one. Let, let me ask you as we read these verses together, if this sounds similar to Matthew 21 and the parable that I read to you this morning. Isaiah 5 says this, now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his what? His vineyard. Hmm. So he's talking about a vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. His well-beloved is Israel. So he's saying, I have made Israel a choice vine. That's what he's saying. He said, and he fenced it Remember, I already hedged it in Matthew 21. He fenced it, gathered out the stones thereof, planted it with the choicest vine, which is Israel, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a wine press therein. Now, look right here so far before we read on. Does that not sound familiar to Matthew 21? Not a coincidence, is it? So they prided themselves, these religious leaders, that they were the choicest of the choice vine. So he's speaking directly to them and they missed it. They never got it. They never understood what he was saying. Why? Because they were not disciples. They were fighting him and fighting his work and fighting his plan. Let's go on reading. And the Bible says that out of that choice vine, he built a tower in the midst of it, made a wine press therein, looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. You're gonna choose the vineyard or you're gonna choose me. Then verse four, look what he says. What could have been done more to my vineyard than I, that I have not done? You know what he's saying? What more could I do? Now remember, I'm talking about extreme care. He's saying, I have done so much for you. You pride yourself that you're of Israel and you're the chiefest of the Israelites. But he's saying, I'm telling you, what more could I have done for Israel than what I have done? What more could I do for you as a people than what I have done? He has given extreme care in this vineyard. He has gone above and beyond to make sure everything was provided for. And isn't that exactly what he did for Israel? He said, what more could I have done? Did I not deliver you out of Egypt? Did I not take you through the sea? Did I not feed you manna from heaven every day? Did I not lead you to the promised land? Did I not give you my law to guide you and my covenant 
to guard you? Did I not send the serpent to heal you? Did I not provide every need in your life? Did I not give you everything that I said I would give you? Did I not send you prophets? Did I not give you my word? Don't you see the care that he gave to them? And my question to you today, what more could he have done than what he has done for you? What more could he do for us? You say, well, preacher, everything's not perfect. Yes, but everything's not wrong either. What more could he have done? He gave us his son. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his word. He's given us his promise. He's given us his power. He's given us a church that we can worship in. He's given us altars to pray on. He's given us music to be blessed by. He's given us healing for our body. He's given us salvation for our soul. He's given us bread on our table. He has given us every need that we've ever had. He has given us forgiveness when nobody else would forgive us. He has given us everything that we want more could he have done. And all he wants is the fruit of your worship. That's all he wants. He just wants us to say, Lord, I recognize what you have done. Can I tell you why churches, good churches become dead churches? They forget what he has done. Extreme care. He has gone above and beyond. Let's get this right. He didn't have to bless you. He didn't have to save you. He didn't have to heal you. He didn't have to keep you. He didn't have to guard you. He didn't have to love you. He doesn't have to use you. He doesn't need you, but oh, we need him and everything that we have done. And week after week, I spend my life trying to get people to say, when are you gonna wake up and get on your feet and say, Lord, I don't understand it, but oh, you have cared and not only have you cared, but you have cared extremely for me. You've gone above and beyond and done more than I could ever imagine. Extreme care. Don't worry, that's the longest point. You didn't shout on it, so I won't give you much more. Extreme evil. Verse 34 through 36. We read, when the time of the fruit drew near. Now remember something, they had an agreement the time of the fruit drew near and he sends his servants. And look what they did in verse 35. The husband took the servants, beat one, killed another, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first and they did unto them likewise. Extreme evil. Now, the owner was just coming to collect what he knew in advance was his. And they knew they owed it. But instead of just saying, 
I'm not going to give him the money. I'm not going to pay. We're going to keep it all. I mean, that's, that's what a normal thinking person, even if they're in the wrong, would do. They would say, I might have taken it and it might not have been mine, but I went ahead and took it anyway. <laughs> it's going to get real quiet here for a minute or two, but that's okay. I have never understood why people do what this husbandman did. Instead of hearing the message and just rejecting the message, instead he kills the messenger. There was no need to kill those servants. None of that was their fault. All they were doing was just bringing the message from the owner saying it's time to settle up. The owner wants his part. But you'll find out in church history from Old Testament to New Testament, the response has always been the same with evil. Evil makes no sense. And instead of someone just saying no, or just saying I'm not going to that church, they they can't be satisfied by just rejecting, oh no, they've got to set out to kill the servants. They've got to set out to kill the messenger. They've got to set out to kill your witness. They've got to set out to destroy your life. They've got to set out to find somebody in the kingdom that has fallen short and used them as an example and to try to set out to destroy the church. I mean, when we have people coming into worship services in this nation, last Sunday, one church, if I understand the news correctly, one church, three people came in, stripped of their clothing, yelling profanity. Let's get this right. Go ahead and come, but you'll be carried out of here in a skinny minute. This is God's house. You don't have to kill the messenger. Don't agree with us. That's fine. You don't have to agree with it. You have the power of choice. You can say no, but there's some things that will not be tolerated. And we're at a place right now where evil is abounding in this nation and it's getting worse and it's getting worse and it's time for Christians to stand on your feet and to say enough is enough. You can go so far, devil, but there's places that you cannot come. You are not going to fertilize evil and let it grow. We're going to stand against evil. Evil doesn't get better. It gets worse. You can't control it. You can't legislate it. You can't debate with it. Evil is evil. Just kill the messenger. They won't just deny the message, kill the messenger. Do you have time for one more? I see extreme care. I see extreme evil. But I see extreme grace. Well, where do you see that? 37. Last of all, He sent unto them his son. 
saying they will reverence my son. Mark's account in Mark chapter 12 and verse six, my mind's correct today. Mark 12, six, Mark defines him as his one son, which means his only son. I'm going to send my only son and they'll reverence him. They never got it. He was preaching to them. He was saying, I am the son. And you know what's strange about this? I don't want to go into overtime today. I'm sorry I'm preaching longer, but I I feel like I need to finish this. You know what's so strange about this? He does something in this parable that's unusual. When you get down to verse 40, right in the middle of the parable, he asks a question. He says, he sent his son, they seized his son, they cast him out, they killed his son. And then he turns around and he says, what will be, what will he do under those husbandmen? See that question? Then he changes gears and starts talking about this stone. The stone that the builders rejected. What he's trying to do is say, hey, wake up. I feel his pain. You can't get people to wake up and see they're lost. You can't get them to see the word of God. You can't get them to understand their need of salvation. He talks about this stone. They, they get it then. Oh, the stone. We know about the stone. That's the cornerstone that they rejected. That was the chief cornerstone. Everything in that temple hinged on that cornerstone. It would be out of line. It wouldn't be strong. Everything hinged on the cornerstone. And Jesus Christ, the New Testament teaches us, is that cornerstone. And suddenly it dawned on them. Oh my, the stone and the sun, they're the same. And he's saying, you're going to kill the son, you're going to reject the son just like they rejected the stone. They're the same. See, in reality, what most people would think, what he should have done was sent all of the warriors that he had, all of the mighty men of valor, gone to that husbandman and killed him and destroyed him. Remember I said it's extreme grace. But instead of doing that, he sends his only son. Why, why do people reject Christ? They turn him away, they blaspheme him, they reject him, they ignore him, they just disregard everything about him, but God in his grace still sent his son. And today the opportunity is yours to accept the son. Don't reject Jesus as they rejected Jesus in those final days of his life. Accept the Lord Jesus Christ and your life will be different. It comes down to two choices. You either accept him or you reject him. Well, I'll turn him away. It won't matter. Oh, that's not the end of the story. Remember what I said all three parables were about? Judgment. See, you're not just going to live this life, do what you want, be what you want, turn Christ away, die, 
And that's the end of it. Our society has now taught us that everyone that dies becomes an angel. First of all, nobody becomes an angel. I know, I know the world has no understanding of it. What I don't understand is the church. When I die, I'm not gonna spread wings and I'm not gonna sit around on a cloud and play a harp. I'm gonna get a glorified body. And as I've borne the image of the earthly, I'll bear the image of the heavenly. You'll be known even as I know you now, I'll know you then. You're not, going to, you're not going to be something. Everyone wants to be an angel. That tells me they know very little about the word of God. When you plant corn, you get corn. And when you plant a Christian, you get a Christian. The only difference is we get a perfect body in a perfect place. But yet we are at a place where that we don't want to see that we can do what we want, reject him, and somehow still make it in. You can't. You can't. 